Hello and welcome to episode one. I'm joined by Dr. Michael Colo. I'm Jamie Van Leeuwen. We're going to be chatting all about AI, creativity, the good, the bad, the ugly, the unknown, the bizarre. Dr. Michael, how are you feeling about AI? Because, I mean, you've been in the space for, for quite a while, haven't you? But it's really getting a lot of attention, a lot of shine at the moment, isn't it? It is. And look, we go through periods of shine, to be fair. I think I think once every decade we fall in love with AI and, and we talk about amazing things it could do and everybody gets super excited and then it turns out it can't really quite do that much. Self-driving cars and, and all these kinds of things that come a long way but haven't quite come to what people expected it to. I think that the word is different this time is often used too much and you can't really tell when things really change until you look back on them. But I, I would hesitate and I would kind of throw my hand up and say out of my time that I've been connected with the field of AI and previously maybe quantitative sciences, this is the first time that we've breached these new territories that we've breached with generative AI. And we haven't previously had any experience with systems that have been able to provide this level of output. And so in many ways, from societal, from ethical, from industry, from economic perspective, from creative perspectives, we're in new territory. And as such, I, I'm really looking forward to these conversations. Mm. Well, how long have you worked in the space of AI? Oh, gee whiz. So I did my PhD in finance way back in 2003. And so that was about 20 years ago. And so, I mean, to, to give people perspective, um, the field of statistics is a study of obviously numbers and probabilities, and that's been around for, for quite a while. It's been adopted by a number of other scientific endeavors like economics and finance and used to solve different kinds of problems, primarily forecasting problems. It's also been partly used by data science in a very different kind of way to look for patterns within data. And, and without going into too much de detail, there is a, a core philosophical difference between the way statistics is used by data science versus, let's say, economics. So in economics, it's about a testing kind of idea, scientific testing. You have a hypothesis, you take it to data, and you say the data confirms my hypothesis or not. It's much the same way that a lot of classical sciences use it. Whereas with data science, what they do is they take a idea or a methodology and they say, I'm going to use this methodology to uncover the patterns in the data. So I don't have a hypothesis as to what the patterns look like. I don't know what it should be. I just think there's something there. It's not noise is my only assumption that I'm making. It's not random. And if I make that assumption, then all I have to do is figure out the kind of crazy amount of data and CPU speed and computing power that I have to focus at this problem. And I will uncover the truth. I will uncover something hidden in the data. And so from the scientist perspective, it is um, asking for trouble. It's asking for misinformation. It's asking for randomness that, that's perceived as patterns and so on. From a data scientist perspective, it's been a boon for the discovery of hidden patterns underneath data that we had no idea of. And so as that, that field has become more successful because of the availability of data and computing speed, I think so the rest of the sciences have decided to take note that maybe, just maybe, there's something here that, that you know, is well beyond our ability to hypothesize and is the, the patterns underneath the data. It's 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 really a crazy time at the moment. Has it kind of shocked you how fast things seem to be accelerating recently? Look, I mean, as somebody who keeps in touch with the research, I think as you get older, your ability to produce research versus monitor and understand it changes. So you become better at monitoring. As an individual, 
and as a father and as a husband, as a member of society, there are moments where I'm anxious. There, there are moments where I feel like the earth has tilted in such a way that is irreversible. And so we're not going to go back. Mm. And that irreversibility feeling and, and that leap into the unknown gives rise to this sense of, of, of anxiousness. So well, what, what, what's my value, but also how is society going to function? And then equally, there's other moments where I'm looking at something like ChatGPT going, this is such an incredible discovery within humanity that really what we should be doing is, is kind of fostering more and more of this. We really should be kind of going in there and, and, and discovering more and more the truth of what ChatGPT has uncovered. But even for me, who's scientifically kind of in, in this field, it's a lot to keep up with. There's a tremendous amount of mushrooming of this technology around the world. Everybody's having a go at something. Um, it's, it's like a new element has entered the forest and all the animals are coming out of poking it <laughs> and sniffing it and trying to figure out what to do with it. And in fact, in this case, because ChatGPT is so accessible to anybody, it's everybody in the forest. It's not just the scientific community. It's, it's the artists, it's the creators, it's the marketers, it's the uh, bankers, it's the uh, analysts, it's everybody. And everyone's trying to figure out there's something here. I think there's this common understanding, but nobody quite understands what it could look like. And that sometimes expresses itself in fear and uncertainty. Sometimes it, it even expresses itself in anger. People kind of get angry at the situation and going, mm. I can't believe this was allowed to be done mm. and we should put it back in the genie and then it's going to destroy us. It's going to be terrible. Even though the answer is we don't know. We, we just don't know. I was speaking at a uh, photography club last night uh, and it was really kind of it was a bit of an older crowd but it was quite sad to see these these people who have known something and i guess we can all relate to this we've known the way that the world is particularly with things that are creative photography you know your hobbies that you know inside and out and something comes along and turns it on its head and i think that that's something that everyone's kind of struggling to deal with a little bit i mean I'd say most people are kind of stuck between this sense of awe and wonder and being absolutely terrified of this technology. Uh, and it's probably fair to, to feel a bit that way. I know particularly in the creative fields, people are really wrestling with this. What does it mean for photography? What does it mean for graphic designers? Is there going to be job losses? Uh, and yeah, I, I think that it's something that this year, next year, next few years are going to be super interesting and super rapid in the way that things start changing. So, so what, what's your take on this? Because what, what fascinates me about this particular movement in generative AI is that the first field that has been hit has been the area that we thought was the most protected from AI. Because we, we, I think, collectively imagined that AI would be a, like a robot, a kind of Terminator-type figure that would go out there and, and calculate like a machine and have the precision of the machine, but have none of our feelings, none of our emotions, mm. none of our stories, none of our compelling narratives none of our creativity and imagination. And here along comes these systems that take what we've done and, and seem to display this. I'm just curious as to what, how, how do you think about that? Maybe from a, are, is AI creative? It is the most, for me, it's the most fascinating area of the recent rise of AI is like you say, we all thought that the human endeavors, the human arts were immune to this kind of thing. I mean, art joke telling comedy we've seen chat gpt doing jokes and they're actually pretty funny they can comprehend things and what goes into humor and the unexpected nature of humor and it can really nail that 
uh, painting. You know, we thought that these things were only for the humans because we can only feel that emotional connection to these these artistic endeavors. But uh, AI is nailing it at the moment. And I found that really interesting to get my head around, certainly. I mean, the arts are never going to go away. Painting wasn't replaced by photography. Photography wasn't replaced by the video. This isn't going to replace any of those things, but it certainly is a separate avenue of creativity. Some people are calling it uh, promptology. Some people are calling it synthography to create these images using uh, AI image generators. Whatever it is, it's certainly something different. The fantastic part about it is it lowers the barrier to entry for people who, A, don't have access to cameras or paints or they'd love to be a photographer, but they can't afford to spend all this money to buy a camera or uh, an Adobe subscription to edit all their photos or their videos. With a phone or with a laptop, you're now able to use AI to create absolutely stunning pieces of imagery, uh, video that you could only dream about. So from that perspective, I think it's fantastic. Someone reached out to me recently and said that they have a disability. They'd love to go and shoot. They're a photographer. I'd love to go and shoot, but they're not able to most days. It's just too painful to get out of the house. So he has really turned from being quite negative and suspicious as a photographer towards AI to starting to harness it to scratch that creative itch and still create something that brings him some kind of pleasure because, uh, you know, for a lot of people, it's just not possible in a lot of ways. And so... One thing is that you can use these systems to create something that you prompt. So you go to Midjourney or Stable Diffusion, Dali, or something else, and you say, I would like to see a stormtrooper on a beach with a uh, vacuum cleaner. Then it creates... I should make that. <laughs> turns out, yeah, it exists. Um, and, you know, it creates a fairly good picture. And in fact, now you can animate it with some of the stuff that Google has brought out. I suppose my question is, like, what point do you think it will be where the AI comes up with that mm. because at the moment the create the creative elements mm. of that of that is still us saying we want mm. this in there in this way and this kind of executes for us and we go oh that's an interesting idea not a good idea but it still feels like for example that there's something that a painter or photographer would do before they picked up their tools to create that image they would say right i would like to shoot this in this way so my question to you is i guess how far do you see that kind of going mm. in terms of the visual content generation? We are still having, as creators, having to be creative to think about what we want to see. If I want to see a stormtrooper on a beach, I have to put that in and it'll give it back to me. But at what point does the AI itself start creating its own imagery or coming up with its own ideas to put out imagery and videos and things to get the maximum engagement? I see that happening really soon, really definitely this year. Because it's interesting, isn't it, how a lot of it comes out to the objective. Like, we've just covered creativity and art in many different ways. Mm -hmm. I think I think it's the way I certainly tend to think about it is that there's an element of creatives who are there because they can't be anything else. So when you write them, you ask them, why are you a writer, why are you a photographer? They say, because it's just in me and I need to get it out. And so for those people, they're probably just interested in bringing that out of themselves. And whatever tools are available to them, including technology, they'll make use of to do that. And I'm guessing that there's a whole other sway of the industry, uh, probably composing some of the people who have day jobs as well in there, who have to do this for companies, uh, for, for the purposes of, or governments, for the purpose of some kind of outcome. And I guess, you know, in that 
way in terms of the workforce element or the application of this technology, how many of, of, of each of those two categories do you see being kind of augmented by this kind of technology or essentially changed, let's call it that? I think that businesses are really, and you could speak to this, I'm sure, are really going to start waking up to, to what AI's potential is and what it can do. Particularly in a creative sense, there are so many kind of, uh, look on social media, like content powerhouses, and they have to put out, so they're desperate to stay on top of the current events, so they get more views. Same with media. Media is really struggling because people are diversifying in terms of where they get their news. People don't go home at 6 p.m. This is speaking as a former journalist and kind of why I walked away from, from TV journalism. I just didn't see the right future in it. People don't go home at 6 p.m. And, and watch the news anymore. They just don't. People are going to start getting their information from so many different areas like social media. If you can create something that is automated, as in the news, just specific to you, it learns what you're interested in. It will serve you only the stuff from the sport that day, but not just sport, the sport teams that you're interested in, the, uh, the weather for your specific part of Sydney, the everything at all that's directed to you and uh, related to you, it would just focus in on. I think that the potential for that is, is huge and the content side of things, we're just going to see it become so busy if it's not busy already uh in terms of social media and content and, and everything of the like it's going to start getting a whole lot more so, so on this let, let's take this a little bit more into futuristic view so am i in the future going to see a completely customized marketing campaign for me because at the moment i get targeted by campaigns mm. based upon my my identity online and they're trying to figure out if i'm a male or female how old i am what i'm interested in and so on and then they kind of target at it to me. And that's obviously been around for a while and we know how that works. But those ads are still uniform in the sense that the agency or the organization creates one ad, one graphic, one beautiful picture of a, of a beach resort that I should visit and then sends that out all the people they think want to visit beach resorts. Mm. But surely with this technology, you would see a different beach resort for every single person exactly. as well. I 100% agree. I mean... Imagine if it's able to, again, this throws up some privacy issues, but imagine if it's able to look at your previous holiday snaps and then judge that, you know, every June, July, you start getting a bit antsy, you like to take a holiday. Last year, you went to Bali. Year before that, you went to Greece. You've been Googling, you know, you've been Googling Fiji. It would really nail down and start hammering you, Dr. Michael, it's time to go to Fiji. Here's a specific resort just for you. Exactly. This is a one-time offer tailored to you. Uh, I do see that coming up. It's the perfect marketing tool because it is so targeted. It is so individual. So I do see that taking off. And, and, and I think if we then take that into photography and we take that into all these other elements, then I think maybe some of this content like music, which I'm sure we'll, we keep circling around copyright. I'm sure we'll get to copyright in a minute, but like things like music or other kind of content that we um, digest and, and, and take on board, I think is... It's an interesting question of how many of these will become highly customized. So if I go to a website today, you go on the same website as I do. But why is that? I mean, surely if it could create a website in real time mm. for me using generative AI, it could be your favorite colors, even my favorite colors, mm. my prompts, whatever. So it, I, I guess it's an interesting question as to how far we go with that. But maybe this is a, a good segue into the uh, 
the big big bear in the room, which is copyright, especially in the world of creatives and arts. There was an article I saw six or 12 months ago about a particular artist who was going after Midjourney, I think, because a lot of their fantasy art had seemingly been sampled to create a certain brand of fantasy art. So Midjourney is one of these algorithms that creates beautiful fantasy art. And a lot of the pictures that were being created for Midjourney, arguably for non-commercial purposes, supposedly, were kind of looking a lot like this artist's work. Mm. I suppose, I mean, what have you seen in the realm, and, and to be fair, this is early days, of, of copyright from artists, especially those who have spent a lot of time creating a particular kind of style and a particular kind of thing? There has only been one example that I have seen where the photographer can pretty convincingly say AI has been trained on my photography. And he's a Brisbane-based photographer, a uh, really good guy. I did a podcast with him recently, Jason Boland, and he is a movie photographer. So that means he goes around with the movie sets and has a stills camera and takes a lot of their shots on set uh, designed to make the movie posters and things like that. He was traveling around the country for Mad Max, the recent Mad Max film, and took all these fantastic images, you know, riding on these big trucks, flames coming out. And he said the issue with it was shooting this situation was there was so much smoke. I don't know if you've seen the movie yourself, but there's so much smoke. It's hard to see at times. That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's carnage. It's fantastic. (laughs) But to take photos and to really cut through that smoke, he had to do a lot of different things with the tonal contrast you know, brighten up certain areas, the sky, and it gave all of his images a kind of halo effect. So around everyone's head, there was kind of this angelic kind of halo effect because it was really having to cut through this smoke. So someone tried to create some similar images to Mad Max and, you know, put in, I want Charlize Theron as uh, Formosa, I think her name is, Furiosa, sorry. Sorry, Jason. (laughs) Furiosa. And what came back, the imagery that came back was pretty identical to his style. And that's in terms of the sky, the tonal contrast, and this this halo effect. So it couldn't have been taken from the movie. The AI couldn't have ripped those imagery from the movie. Only could have been from his photography because of those specific three things um, that are really down to his style. Say that image that was created is entered into a photography competition, you know, gets a lot of praise, gets rewards, gets money, whatever it is. Jason isn't going to be given any of that, even though the AI is directly referencing, taking whatever we want to talk about, influenced by whatever we want to call it, his imagery. So I do think that copyright is going to be a huge issue, particularly for the creative arts. And I don't know if we, I don't know if we're equipped to handle it. One other thing I'd say, people always say, what are the telltale signs? What are the telltale signs of AI imagery? And right now, in a lot of ways, there are no telltale signs. I mean, you can make fantastic images of really realistic scenarios of, I mean, we saw that Donald Trump going viral for being arrested. That was fake. Uh, The Pope Pope wearing a nice big Balenciaga jacket. (laughs) That was another one. It gets cold. It gets cold. It does. In the Vatican, it gets cold. Yeah. Uh, So we've seen these images that look so lifelike, but are so outrageous. And there's no watermark. There's no way to verify that these are legit images or not. Not yet anyway. And I'd be interested to know your take from the 
technology side of things, if you think there could be, people have said blockchain, things like that. Do you think that there could be some kind of way in future, because there's no watermarking on these images, to tell that an AI image is an AI image? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. So there's a couple of things that I find difficult about this topic. I think one of them is that it's a bit of an arms race. So for every time that you figured out a dead set way of telling something AI image, the AI image generator will upgrade and change and no longer be able to tell. So it's never something that you can solve. It's a race in a way. And I think early on with copyrights from ChatGPT and other things, that was a big question here as to who owns that piece of text and, and, and ultimately, you know, whether it can be copyrighted or not. So my sense is unfortunately not. And then there's a second complication here, which is, let's say that the algorithm that sampled your friend's work, um, it trains another algorithm on what it means to draw pictures. And that other algorithm is used by a Taiwanese company to do a really cool poster for their new product with halos around it. So it's not clear anymore what the line is, right? Um, I mean, it's already not clear where this algorithm got your friend's photos to be able to train on. Maybe that's an interesting, mm. difficult kind of question. Uh, maybe that's legal, maybe that's not. But now that it's out of the bag, it's out there and it can train other algorithms. And I think if you look at the evidence on ChatGPT training smaller language models, I'm sure that you'll have other kind of transfer learning type of ideas, uh, which is not the same point, but is essentially around this idea that you can have one system that trains another. Transfer learning is actually um, to do with when you learn one task and able to do another task, so slightly different within an algorithm. This is about algorithms training other algorithms. So I think we'll lose this thread very, very quickly. And then we'll ask ourselves questions like, do you own a halo? Mm. <laughs> can you ever copyright a halo effect? Um, I don't know. Um, and also, what, what, what happens when machines start taking photographs mm. because at this point we're like oh well we're humans we take all the photos and these machines and algorithms have taken our photos and created artificial photos so we're unhappy about that but what happens when the algorithm goes well actually we don't need you technically we can just create an algorithm that will just take photos and put it on the blockchain for everybody to have as an example and so now you've got this massive you already have open source libraries for text and things like that you already have it for pictures. That's how things like foxes and cats are trained and so on. But again, going forward, I, I don't think we're gonna, not going to be able to hold on to this human-only produced element. And I think this goes back to the previous point is if you're creative, you're looking at this thing going, these machines can't be creative right now. So if I need to express myself, I can use these tools. That's awesome. But when you start getting to competitive mode, like I'm going to create an amazing photograph that's going to win a competition. It's going to promote a brand that's going to do something else. Next to me will be lined up more algorithmic, scientifically generated content that will be hyper-optimized to achieve that particular target, which is often commercials, clicks, you know, responses, reactions, and whatever. So I feel like at that point, it'll be like a little bit of like a chess moment or like a go moment where you kind of line up next to three algorithms and go, oof. Okay, so I'm going to create something for three months. It's going to be incredible. But then those algorithms can iterate on a sub-second basis to get something. And I think this, where it starts getting very interesting is where you start to look at a campaign, a marketing campaign, or some other kind of image-generated campaign. And, you can t and the algorithm starts to be able to tell what will be regarded as funny. 
right? Yes. Because because we, 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 some of the best cafes that we probably remember are the ones that are like funny, yeah. like yeah. stand out. Yeah, yeah exactly. They're, they're not happy Jan, right? Yeah. Classic, right? Yeah. White pages that are walking down the street. Not happy Jan, beautiful character acting. Remember it to this day, etc. That was funny, but in a kind of bizarre character-driven kind of way and not obviously. Now, when algorithm starts to understand exactly what that looks like, they were to create that type of content and they were to do it in a, in a kind of competitive way as well, where they look at the landscape and go, these are the other things. Now, this is all science fiction-y kind of stuff, but it's not because when you look at things like ChatGPT, you can input into it a context mm-hmm. and say, is this funny? Is this interesting? Which of these two things is funnier? And so on. It can make comparisons. Yeah. I mean, I, I showed at this photography event last night. It was a meme of a uh, tray of chicken nuggets. And it kind of vaguely looked like they were arranged like the earth. And the caption that was put on it was, wow, look at this beautiful shot of earth from space. Someone put that meme into ChatGPT and asked, explain why this is funny. Oh. And it broke it down in a very unfunny way yeah. why it was yeah. funny and it said juxtaposition because they're saying it's earth but it's actually a tray of chicken nuggets and then it ended with it's vague and silly <laughs> thank you very much yeah <laughs> we know <laughs> yeah 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 so you're right the fact that it's able to comprehend at some level what is funny and what isn't funny i mean is it going to start putting comedians out of jobs would you go and see i'd probably go and see a, a comedian that's an ai just put a big screen up on tv and it can read us read us some jokes i wouldn't mind that so, so it, it, it's a very interesting point so i was thinking about this um in terms of music but maybe it can be applied here as well and i was thinking about this on, on the weekend that okay my argument is the following musicians so there's certain kind of musicians like david bowie where you're like wow you're an individual, you have an amazing character, and the music flows out of your character. Elton John, there's a whole bunch of other high straits, you could name a lot more in that genre, probably more recently as well than you know a long time ago. <laughs> but the idea is that these individuals, you connect with them as a person, mm. and you go, you're a human being, you're just a, a really unusual human being, and I enjoy watching interviews with you, I enjoy your character, and your music flows directly with your character. It's kind of aligned. Then you've got this middle ground, which I'm going to be contentious and say Michael Jackson, where Michael Jackson as an individual, you're like, oh, okay, so you're like a softly spoken, very artistic, creative kind of person with some weird habits, uh, but your on-screen persona and your music persona is this wild boy, this bad boy, this kind of attitude-filled guy. So I'm not really seeing the connection, but I love your music and you've really hacked me in terms of the rhythm, the beats, the 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 chinois whatever you want to call it, it it's just there and and so there's something that really appeals to me but i can't really connect it to you as a human being and then you got the other part which is a fully produced stuff right where like um uh Ava Mamburen or tiesto or others where you know there's an individual there but i have no idea who that individual mm. is I've, i don't really have exactly. a sense of them at all and the music is great because it's got the right beats, it's got the right BPMs, it transitions well, it's got the melodic effect, it's been professionally put together, and whether it's live or not is another thing. I feel like AI will encroach very heavily on that latter one and will kind of start to pick up what makes something interesting and compelling in the middle part. What I think will be a little bit harder is the question of what does it, what's compelling right now? Because I think, you know, people go through phases and, and, and what could have worked in the 80s doesn't work now and so on. So I think it's, 
finding out what works now, which is a kind of a, a slightly different problem. Um, but I don't know if it will encroach on the on the first part. So, for example, you know, Dave Chappelle or uh, you know Joe Rogan or whoever goes up on stage and gives a view of the world from their perspective. Their their humor is very connect closely connected to their character and who they are. In fact, they kind of play off that a lot. So it's a very authentic human experience that we have now. It could be replicated. Yeah, if we if we humanized an AI, perhaps. It's that relatability, right? Even with Joe Rogan, even though he's got many more millions of dollars than I do. Hundreds. <laughs> yes. Lives in the US. Like, we don't have too much in common. We both like UFC, though. Yeah. But we don't have too much in common. I can still relate to him, too. If it's this vague AI speaking to you and telling jokes... Maybe you won't have that emotional connection to them because there's no relatability. They don't walk around the streets. They don't sit on a Sunday and watch the UFC. They don't like the similar things that I might like that forms an emotional connection. And would that lessen the mm, connection to appreciate their art, if it's music, if it's joke telling, whatever it might be? It's definitely an interesting one. But also the, the use cases are interesting. So you've got the the idea of light entertainment, which says, I'm going to scroll through my phone. I'm going to listen to something in the background while I'm working, elevator music, jazz. These are all things where, you know, we just have it in the background. It's a passive form of entertainment. So it doesn't really matter that we don't connect deeply with the person, with the idea, with the lyrics, with whatever. In fact, half the probably time people listening to this, we probably have a bunch of songs that we could recite off by heart simply because we heard it at a certain part of our lives. And it's kind of got fixated there. So I feel like all of that is not really the realm of deep musicians. It's the realm of the, of that shallow entertainment section. Mm. And then I feel like there is a deep kind of deeper meaning kind of music, but it's, we as people tend to discover it, I think in moments of crises in our own lives. There was a wonderful quote uh, recently, I, I saw it again. Um, it was really about what is art? Uh, where, when do people, the average person start to explore art? And it's when they have a moment, when something bad happens, when their mother dies, their, 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 their child dies, they get diagnosed with a condition, they see the mortality of their life, and that makes them fall into poetry or fall into something where they want to they wanna see who else has felt what they have felt. And they want to kind of get that resonance of what's inside from the outside world. But again, I think in some of those cases, you're not necessarily looking for a person that's also, let's say, being diagnosed with a terrible disease to sit opposite you and you can kind of go, oh, well, that sucks. Yeah. You're looking for answers or some kind of way out or some kind of forward-looking thing. And this is where, you know, I, I think certain kind of therapeutic music, but also um, imagery. I mean, there's a lot to be said for art, art as a form of therapy, right? As a form of, of understanding beauty and appreciating beauty. But does that beauty have to be conveyed by a human being in order to be appreciated as beauty? It's a great point. I mean, and it comes back to is AI art art? And I do think that AI art is art in the sense that it looks fantastic. It can tell a point. It can make a statement about the world, whatever you kind of want to do with it in that sense. But no one has created it. So I think it does lack that emotional connection. My personal AI art, I've created 15,000 or so different pieces of imagery, videos, all, all these things I've been playing around with quite, quite a lot. I don't feel the same sense of pride about AI imagery that I create 
as opposed to the real photographs. I was in Qatar, luckily. I mean, had a great time in Qatar for the World Cup last year. I was able to take my camera over, get some fantastic shots that I'd never usually be able to get, a different way of life. I feel so much more pride towards those images because I, I was physically there and I have an emotional connection to that time, exploring a new place, seeing new things, than I do with my AI imagery that is a lot better. I mean, the AI imagery, if you were just looking at it yourself and comparing the two, you'd say that one's better every day of the week. But I'm not going to hang that image that I've created through AI on my wall necessarily. So that's a really interesting part that I have found through this experience, through this process, just the pride level. And I, I think it comes back to the struggle. I mean, the Mona Lisa took four years, four and a half years to create, to paint. I can now sit on my couch in Sydney and create things in a matter of seconds, a matter of minutes that look fantastic. I'm not saying it's as good as the Mona Lisa, but I am saying that they are fantastic to look at. That struggle is really removed with AI art and AI imagery. And I think that there's something telling in that when we lose the struggle, you kind of lose a bit of what art is as well. In the same way that we appreciate uh, handmade rugs a lot more than we do Ikea or Kmart rugs that have been created by a machine. I think the handmade struggle that goes into it to know that someone has sat there for a year and really put this rug together is telling and we do value that struggle that uh, the people put into artistic pursuits it's a it's a very very strong point isn't it this idea that things that are worth things take time and cost and efforts but also that there, there, there's things that are futile and that you struggle against and then there's things where through that struggle there's an evolution within you that then you then reflect on and go wow that was incredible especially when you're kind of going through life. I suppose for me, the the counter, not the counter example, but the adjacent example is I went online and I had a chat with a philosopher chatbot, which has been trained on Albert mm -hmm. Camus kind of uh, text. And he's one of my favorite philosophers. He has a very kind of abstract idea that existence or existentialism is kind of irrelevant and we don't really, a lot of things that we think matter don't matter. And, and a lot of his books are reflecting this kind of absurdity of our existence. And so I started talking to him about morality and about society. And because I was curious, I kept asking questions and he kept helping me to understand different structures and relations. He brought in Socratic philosophy, he brought in other things here and there and everywhere. Um, I couldn't have a debate with it. I couldn't get it to change its mind or to change some of its relationships. So I, I had a long debate with it about whether we should relinquish control of our governments to AI. Interesting. <laughs> because I, I and, and the argument went, people are not good at managing complexity. Mm. We're not managing, good at managing um, organic evolving systems. Biases. We take a lot of, bi we have a lot of biases. Um, and so if we think about governments as being resource organization engines across a multitude of preferences and complexity and so on, then uh, would we not, should we not rely upon more technology-based ultimately intelligent decision-making to augment that. And he went along with it all the way to the end because it all made sense. And then at the end, so therefore, should we not hand over some control autonomy to AI? And he went, no, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> and, and of course, you know, the answer, they didn't have a good answer because it had just, it works by association. So it doesn't have, it can't get to a problem. You can't be made to get to a conclusion. You can only navigate it to find a conclusion that already has associations for. 
But how you navigate to it obviously matters, but but you can't get it to come to a conclusion. And so for me, the the, the, the the interesting part is I did get a lot of satisfaction out of using AI to explore a problem space. But the struggle of compelling, convincing the pushback that you would normally get in an argument or interactive conversation wasn't there yet. But it's an interesting question where once you start to augment at the tool that you describe with some form of intelligence that goes, hey, why don't you try this, Jamie? Look, I mean, I, you know, I don't really like that. I, I like I like the blues better and the light blues, and maybe you should... Now, I'm not sure about this. You can get into a world where your struggle is wrestling with an enormous algorithm to actualize something like a picture of your mum that you have in your mind as a child, but you never had a photo of. And when she was down at the beach with you, and there was this beautiful sunrise, and you just remember her golden hair... And you want that picture in some physical form. And now you're going to bring it out. And that's the picture you would hang on your wall, arguably. Mm. Well, there's... So you're saying it's more a collaboration with the AI to create something new. I, I, I think I think so. I mean, it's very interesting. So a lot of artists are inherently internal. So they're kind of trying to bring out something. Internal. They, sure. they hide away and they kind of push it out. And they're pushing out. They're giving birth is part of the struggle. And the longer it goes for, the, the more imaginalized kind of chipping away, making things, whatever... Mm. Now imagine having somebody next to you with all the knowledge uh, of, of all the artworks and all the power and all the relative information that it needs from you, but it's still there to help you. It would be a wonderful companion in, mm. in, in, if you allowed it to be, of course, um, in this creative journey that you don't have to take alone anymore. Yeah, almost like a mentor that can walk you through and help you get to the destination that you're looking for. 100%. A, yeah. a mentor or a guide or, 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 I mean, again, this is where it starts to get a little bit interesting. So a lot of the, the chat GPT agents are very good at two-way conversations, as you know. And we tend to treat them very much as one-way servants. Mm. So if you think about, um, we kind of say, do this for me. No, that's not very good. Do this for me. Ah, oh, yeah, you failed that. Oh, dude, actually, that was pretty good. And they're one-shot kind of arguments. We, we don't really go with uncertainty to technology. We don't, that vulnerability is not really carried into, into a conversation to say, what do you think I should be looking at? I'd like to create a really interesting picture of Qatar. What do you think would be an interesting juxtaposition between the sand and the modern architecture that I see, for example? And you could walk through a kind of a, a collaborative conversation that might lead you to creating an idea or a piece of artwork or whatever else that you hadn't really considered before, or that you had, but but this augmentation meant that you actually took a slightly left turn and rather right turn. At 24-7, in your basement, in your living room, in anywhere you want kind of thing. Yeah, I haven't played around too much with those chatbots where you can speak to a celebrity, things like that, but there's one that's getting a lot of hype. It's a pretty dark news story this week. But Michael Schumacher, he's been in a coma, I believe, since uh, 2013. He had a really bad skiing accident and no one's seen him since. Of course, he hasn't done any media interviews. A German magazine has publicized, we've got the first interview with Michael Schumacher. He's awake from his coma. Here he is. And they've run this article with all these quotes talking about how he's changed and all these things since the accident and how he's happy to be alive. And it's all done by AI. And so, of course, the family of Michael Schumacher is suing them yeah. because it's outrageous. But what do you think about that in terms of maybe misusing this? Ugh, where do you see it all, all heading? Wow. Okay. So that's, that's kind of, that's a very dark example, mm. clearly. 
So, so there's a kind of corporate angle of this, which is around cybersecurity. And that basically says, if we can replicate people's voices and their intonations and their email, then that's a problem because now we can, uh, you know, disguise ourselves as that person. We can get into systems. We can get into getting people to do things for us. When I call up my uh, secretary and in the AI in my voice, ask for something, release a funds, a transfer, whatever, mm. it happens. I, I think from a um, societal perspective, there is a kind of an angle to this, which says for people that are past or unwell, can we create digital versions of them that are appealing? So this moment clearly was used or abused for publicity, I guess. But there is a question here to me, which says, if your loved one passes, so if let's say, um, not Shimaka, but somebody else uh, has had an accident and they passed, um, and you're able to create a digital avatar of them, is that something that we're going to start seeing where actually you have a digital version that you can access, you can email message. And I think there, there has been instances of these and I'm not sure mm, I'm not yeah. saying anything new, but it, I suppose, yeah, it, it's the, it's the, it, it, it really takes you that this idea that in our society, there's animals and humans, there's a massive gap in intelligence and communication. And that maybe, maybe what we're discovering here and creating here is the interim a digital agent. And a digital agent will be somebody or something, well, we don't even know what the word is, mm. that will sound and look like us. It may have to have rights, not quite human rights, <laughs> citizens' rights. <laughs> it may have to have some amount of identity. Um, because again, in this case, it was just more of a demonstration of technology. But what happens if this agent was given a little bit of self-awareness, purely for prompt design? So, you, you, you know, give me, an, give me an interview and pretend that you are this person with this kind of mindset and frame of mind and so on. I mean, I guess I would, would, I'd love to get your thoughts on how do you think that would shape up in terms of that, that type of interim identity? Well, I do see that being a huge uh, rise as well. I mean, AI avatars, we're already starting to see a lot of businesses start using those. So say your CEO, you want to get out a weekly newsletter and your CEO usually presents those to camera, but the CEO is sick this week. We have enough information based on his previous ones that we can train a model on him and get him to quote unquote read or present to the camera. It won't actually be him. It'll be his AI avatar or AI agent. That's a positive because you could be sending out newsletters personalized to every person you want it. You could do thousands a day if you wanted to. The CEO would never have to lift a finger. He'd be in a completely different place, but it would be, again, him or his AI agent or avatar presenting to the company. Even the way that we've said it, right? Him presenting or digital version presenting to the company. But that digital version can present to every single member of the company mm. differently. Yeah. Personalized. Yeah. Personalized. 100% mm. personalized from the CEO. Digital version, the CEO straight to you. Yeah. Well, imagine, let's take it a step further. Imagine that as you're walking into the office each day, there's a camera that reads your facial expression and it can tell, are you happy? Are you sad? How are you feeling today? It really gets in your mind. As soon as you walk through the door, you walk in a bit grumpy. As soon as you sit down, there is a video that pops up in your inbox and you click it and it's from the CEO and the CEO says to you, it's all going to be okay. You work for a great company. You're a great employee. Here's 10 bucks to go spend at the cafe downstairs. Imagine that level of personalization and what that could do 
for workplace culture, for things like that? It's a very interesting point because I think if you think about HR use cases, which talk about people's skills development today, so what do you do? You turn up in a company, you have a manager that welcomes you in, they give you a postcard, they give you a laptop, you they sit you down, they get a first team meeting, you start to learn the ropes, right? Depending upon how good your manager is, depends on how much training you get. Maybe some things you don't know, some things you do know, you sit quietly in meetings for three months until you roughly pick up things and then you start to operate depending on what seniority that you're in. But I think this is an interesting one where you could have a digital agent that immediately is your onboarding agent. And again, comes, comes as yeah. you go in, tells you where things are, has a chat with you, and then puts in a diary meeting with you every morning and then later on every week to, to just to chat with you, to check in how you're doing. It takes the emotional reading of your tone of your voice of the conversation of what you've been doing and so on. And, and obviously, this is where this dystopian story is a dark mirror yeah. come in of like, you know, big brother watching you. Um, and maybe this is a good thing to touch on as well. Like, so what, what, what do you think are the biggest fears? Yeah. And around this kind of technology? Well, particularly when we're talking about this side of things, I think a fear would be that AI could know you better than you know yourself. So- Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> brilliant. Why? It's brilliant. I love it. So again, you're feeling a bit sad. You're not sure why you're feeling sad, but it has been analyzing you for the past year. Sure. And it can pinpoint where you started to feel sad. Maybe you haven't been getting out in the sun. Maybe you haven't been exercising enough. It can give you a a step-by-step routine of how it thinks that you could uh, improve your quality of living, improve your mood, things like that. Is that something we need? I don't know. Is that something we want? I'm not sure. But when you look at places where, I mean, access to healthcare, if you had a personal assistant who can tell you or kind of give you an assessment of where it thinks you could improve your quality of life, that's a positive thing. 100%. And I think this is where you start to to meet the, the fears that you, you talk about, probably in the corporate sense, are more around data privacy and, mm. and some of these kind of loose control. But if you see the upside, the ability to put a medical professional with some amount of medical training in every single you know, computer mm. uh, is a brilliant dream. And I think people have had it in a number of different ways and it's becoming ever more realizable. I think doing the same thing for like year seven mathematics. You want to teach year seven mathematics to everybody. There was a wonderful note that Bill Gates put out recently where he said that Chad GPT was the biggest innovation he'd seen since integrated circuits of the 1980s. Mm. So when you get it from someone like that who's so on the pulse, you're like, wow, amazed. And so he talks about it. And then in the next chapter, he talks about some of the use cases, one of them being mathematics. If you could train every human being in mathematics to a certain level in the world, you get incredible productivity improvements. You get incredible kind of upswing because it's understand the way things work at the system of thinking. Mm-hmm. So education and helping people evolve their understanding of the world, their, their reasoning, their logic, or whatever through maths, as an example case, is within the realm of generative AI to sit there and do that personalized chat for every single person with a computer connection. Like it's, it's a humanity, civilization level altering type of activity. So, I mean, every time that we've used technology in the past, two things have happened. One is we've stopped doing something that was a lot of effort, like agricultural revolution, right? So everybody said, oh my God, we need to know the skills of sowing seeds. And then we had tractors and then we no longer needed those skills. And then we found something else to do, like white collar work or whatever. So I I feel like the risk here, which is the one that Kissinger also pointed out in the Economist op-ed earlier this year, Wall Street Journal, excuse me, op-ed this year, was a really good one. And he basically said that 
if the intellectuals, this technology augments much higher level of critical thinking than the previous ones. And so really a potentially erodes critical thinking capability because you no longer need to do it, right? Because if that was effortful, now you can dispose of it. Somebody else can do it. Something else can do it for you, etc. And I think this is where the, the issue with AI has always been that in order for us to convince ourselves it's not going to cause mass unemployment, we needed to convince ourselves that there's other industries that people will be useful for that AI can't do. And the problem, as it was pointed out a long time ago in an Intelligence Squared debate in London, which was great at the time, was that um, once AI gets to 120, 130 IQ level on certain tasks, there's not enough people that can do them above that level in society. And so I, I guess, yeah, look, for, for me, the, the issue here is about critical thinking. If you're able to use your facilities of critical thinking and use tools around you to achieve those and, and to kind of question the world around you, to understand the world better around you, then these tools will be a godsend, a boon for you. And you'll be like, this is amazing. I can do so much more than this. I can understand so much more. If you're going to rely upon these tools as a crutch and say, oh, thank God I no longer have to write that email. Now the mm -hmm. tool will just do it for me. Then you're basically saying in a matter of time, you will relinquish those tasks to those tools in the completeness. But without a plan of what you're going to be thinking about on adding value through next the next phase, uh, capitalism will very quickly dispose of you. It's not a person that will do it. It's not the AI that will do it. It's a system that we operate under today. If we lived in socialism, I think there'll be very different connotations for AI. And just lastly, I mean, it's been fantastic to chat to you today, but just lastly, the music industry is starting to get its own moment in the sun, particularly with this song that was released this week called Heart on My Sleeve by Drake. Of course, it wasn't by Drake. It was by a ghostwriter was the person who uh, released it under that name. Or was it a person? Well, exactly, exactly. So essentially, <laughs> this song has come out, Heart on My Sleeve. I'll be honest, I don't actually mind the song. I think it's actually half decent. It actually sounds quite a lot like Drake, and I think that's yeah. why it shocked a lot of people. Uh, Universal Music has since come out and taken it down. Mm. It harms the artist's uh, representation. It harms the artist's reputation, potentially anyway. Sure. Do you see this being the stance that, you know, we talk about copyright, the stance that, you know, artists are going to be using in future? Because imagine if this Drake song went on to win a Grammy. Yeah. Drake never did a thing. He was sitting in his yeah. house and this song was was created and everyone around the world loved it. I've been fascinated with um, how the music industry and, and general societies handled this. So I think that was about a year and a half, two years ago, there was another release where they had... Um, an album called the 27 somethings and it was about all the artists that died at 27 so they, i think they had um amy winehouse and a mm. few others and they did this randomly created song um by amy winehouse and similarly it was taken off and it was quickly banned even though the artists are no longer here with us um but i think at the moment it, it's very hard to comment on an industry where uh these decisions are taken in a boardroom by a collection of 10 people mm. And if you're not in that room, in that moment, with that mindset, it's it's hard to, to justify or to give context here. But I suppose my best guess at, at what's happening here is a little bit like a deer in the headlights kind of moment. Mm. So they believe they own the likeness of this artist and they've paid good money for that in terms of supporting and building up the artist. Uh, it'd be like a Mickey Mouse badge if you want. And now this technology is taking that likeness 
and generating clicks and views and money from it. Mm. And the interim agent is a generative AI. And technically, from a legal perspective, that might take a little bit longer to un unbundle. But if you're listening to this song and you like Drake, and therefore you like the song, then you're then Ghostwriter is benefiting from all the work they've done with Drake to get this get him to sound like that. Mm. Right? And mm. and to kind of build up that asset. So I suspect that from a copyright perspective, likeness will be soon kind of, uh, I suppose, yeah, captured within that generative AI con containment and, and there will be some control over that. But I think there's a lot of areas of gray that we've talked about. Like, So you blend Drake with Sting, with um, Dr. Dre, with a bit of Tupac, and you've got an incredibly interesting blended new voice, mm. which sounds fresh, yeah, sounds straight to street. You've got lyrics provided for ChatGPT, and now because you've got a blended artist, the music industry doesn't know what to do with you because that's what they do. They create slightly different variations of boy bands and R&B artists and rap artists. They also work off a script of the things that they need to have in that artist's voice in order to build them up. So, it, it to me, it's a the the blending is really where the yeah where the problem arises. Or, or they could get around the kind of legality, I suppose, and AI just creates its own artist. So taking the best bits, what it deems the best bits of Drake's voice, the mm. best bits of Jay Z's voice, and it creates a voice that's entirely new, and that's the one that puts out songs that gets all the clicks. And it, and it does it. It does a new song every day. Mm. I mean, um, so the artist that you just mentioned was Drake and um, The Weeknd. And the weekend, yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. So, they, and so it, it can do collaborations yeah. between things. It can do, but again, it goes back to this, that previous point we had about: do you connect with the artist? Do you kind of go, yeah, Drake's a bit like Nice from the streets, da da da, or is it just a manufactured piece of music? In which case, clubs, nightclubs, and whatever is there. So, I think Spotify already has a DJ functionality mm. where it's available for some, and I think it's um, it, it blends and creates new content from blended stuff. So, we already have the technology for text to music. I think that already exists. Uh, it's just because of these copyright things hasn't been quite quickly to release. Yeah. Um, but you can see that it's it's here. Now, I mean, what do you think? If, if, you're a, if you're a musician today, you're a singer, you're an artist, I mean, I, you're already having issues, right? In terms of like, you can't really make record sales. It's so difficult for artists across all creative industries, for sure. And this is just an extra hurdle that you may have to soon compete with. It could open up doors for you to do a collaboration that you've always dreamed of, though. Again, you might have to get around the likeness, but let's just say Taylor Swift allowed you as this little band in Melbourne to collaborate with her uh, through AI. So you create a song and you can bring her vocals in. She never has to do anything, but you can bring in her real voice or what sounds like a real voice to create a new song that goes on to be number one and you know you reap all those rewards. What's difficult is going to be, like you say, the copyright, the likeness, the legality side of things. But you talk about the emotional connection as well. I sat there last night trying to sleep and I had this damn song in my head, this Drake song, this fake song. So you... And it's got a great video, by the way. It's good. <laughs> video. So, so I don't have the emotional connection to this AI avatar, That's right. ghostwriter, whoever yeah. created this, That's right. but it's a catchy tune that's stuck in my head. But this to me is the Michael Jackson effect. I'm going to go back to that example again. Mm. So Michael Jackson was, we were, so I grew up in Hungary in Eastern Europe. So we listened to Michael Jackson running around 
Budapest when I was eight years old. We have no idea what the words said. We don't speak English. Dirty Diana was being sung by a bunch of seven-year-olds. We had no idea there was that prostitutes <laughs> and, and, and the rest of it at all. You know, uh, re, uh, the, the the red light song from Sting, right? Mm. Put, put in a red light. Roxanne, Roxanne. Mm. Again, sung by a multitude of nationalities with no idea of context. Right? And why? Because they hacked a certain idea of rhythm and melody and beat. And because those two things work together, it was like, it was cool. It was funky. It stuck in your head and so on. That, I think, is where AI is going to excel. The hacking of our, what makes music nice for us. And we've only talked about entertainment music, but what about relaxation music? What about Zen music? What about music that puts us in certain altered states of mind or consciousness, all these things as well? I think there's a whole realm of, of other ways that music affects us. And the, the thing that captures me about music as well, uh, is aside from the copyright thing, is every baby or kind of, you know how the child prodigies, they can sit in front of a piano and play the piano. Mm. So how is it possible that a human being can sit in front of a piano that they've never seen before and play, but has to learn a language? Why is it that no human being is ever born with innate language speaking capabilities, yet certain human beings are born with innate musical capabilities? So in some ways, maybe we're much closer to music in terms of a hardwiring of our brain than we are with language. Maybe language is an acquired higher cognitive reasoning type of skill. Um, but with music, there's some kind of base level that we're impacted on. In which case, AI being able to enter that space and create music is going to be a really interesting space. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's so much disruption going on. So much attention is on this space at the moment. Look, it's been fantastic to speak to you today, Dr. Michael. And uh, yeah, let's do it again soon. Let's do it. Thanks. Thanks, Jerry.